as Hannah was saying in, um, uh, as Hannah was mentioning in prayers, we're um, uh, we're in the in the middle of just a, a little series of three um, visits to a, a pretty obscure Old Testament book called Lamentations. Um, let me just say a little bit before we before we read a chapter um, from it. Um, Poetry is intended to move us, isn't it? Um, at least it should. Uh, whether it's, a, it's a, a love sonnet from Shakespeare um, or some war poetry from Secret for Sassoon. You, you sense that their intention in writing is to stir uh, our feelings. It's not, not quite the same as, as sort of intellectual relentless logic of some sort of academic piece of writing. Uh, but it's not even the same as um, an impassioned piece of prose. And now, there's something about poetry that, that functions rather differently. It, it kind of alludes and hints. It, it leaves us with impressions. It creates mood. And, and truth does need to do that. We very easily, in a city like Cambridge, full of academic excellence, uh, move to the idea that the the acquisition of truth is simply the accumulation of information. But of course it's not. Uh, As soon as we pause for a moment, we realize that. To believe something is not just knowing a set of facts. Uh, To to really believe something also involves absorbing the emotional impact of that truth. Truth doesn't need to just change our thoughts. Truth needs to change our affections, change our desires. And and these five poems that make up the Book of Lamentations need to be read on those terms. We need to feel them uh, as much as puzzle over them. Um, I was suggesting to you last week that the, the historical context, most people think that the historical context for the Book of Lamentations is the overthrow of the city of Jerusalem um, by the Babylonians in 587 uh, BC. Um, a terrible, terrible siege, starving the city um, till the conditions within were awful um, and then eventually uh, overrun by the Babylonian army. Uh, the the walls torn down, the the temple sacked. Uh, It was a a terrible, terrible loss with awful suffering. But we also mentioned last week that these chaotic, distressing, disturbing events are set out in the Book of Lamentations in a very ordered and organized way sort of a contrast between the terrible things being described and the very organized way in which they are described. Because these five poems come to us in in the form of um, acrostic poems. That is, a poem where each stanza um, begins with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters, 22 verses, uh, working their way steadily through. Uh, People have wondered, is this a kind of A to Z, comprehensive, start to finish, description of suffering. Um, And today we need to notice in addition to that that when we come to chapter 3, we arrive 
at what most people again think is probably the climax of the poem. Uh, we don't kind of think like that, do we? We, we kind of imagine that a piece of writing uh, tends to build towards a climax at the end. Um, but Hebrew poetry would often function differently. And its focus, its sort of um, center point uh, was the middle. And that was the climax. That was the big thing. Um, and that seems more likely when we discover that this central chapter, chapter 3, is a triple acrostic. So that each of the stanzas has three verses, uh, all of which begin uh, with the same letter. Um, so you get three lots of 22, uh, making up the 66 verses uh, that we have here. Uh, and that kind of draws our attention to the middle. And in fact, it's not just the middle chapter, but it's the middle of the middle chapter that really stands out, as you'll hear in a moment, uh, as I read it. Two things to look for as we read. Uh, first, again, as last week, can I encourage you to just sort of feel the mood um, as much as puzzle over the detail. Um, ask yourself what emotions are being stirred uh, by these words. Um, uh, but secondly, I want to suggest this week, listen for the, for the stance that is being taken towards God. How is the writer describing his, his, his view towards the Lord? How is God spoken of? Uh, what attitude is being taken towards God um, as the chapter uh, reads through? So it's on page 826. Um, Hannah's prayed for us, so I'll read. Page 826, Lamentations, chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he's turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He's made my paths crooked, like a bear lying in wait. Like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughing stock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for him. 
The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You've covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You have made us scum and refuse among the nations." All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We've suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. What I see brings grief to my soul because of all the women of my city. To those who were my enemies without cause, hunted me like a bird. They tried to end my life in a pit and threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head and I thought I was about to perish. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you and you said, do not fear. You, Lord, took up my case. You redeemed my life. Lord, you have seen the wrong done to me. Uphold my cause. You've seen the depth of their vengeance, all their plots against me. Lord, you have heard their insults, all their plots against me. What my enemies whisper and mutter against me all day long. Look at them, sitting or standing, they mock me in their songs. Pay them back for what they deserve, Lord, for what their hands have done. Put a veil over their hearts and may your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Uh, Rather as last week, what I want to to do is um, just under three headings, um, highlight a few things uh, that are here in this chapter um, and then use that as a springboard to to land one main thought um, as um, we reflect on the chapter. So the the three headings. First, a terrible experience of judgment. Um, In all sorts of ways, this chapter continues where we were last week um, in chapters 1 and 2. A terrible experience of judgment laid out uh, before us. Uh, It's written in a single voice. um, I am the man. Uh, Is is it an actual individual? 
who had witnessed uh, the terrible uh, destruction of Jerusalem? Is it a sort of poetic representative of all the people? It doesn't really matter what we know and what we can hear is just how awful the experience has been. We begin with a barrage of he's. Did you see it? He has driven me away. He's turned his hand against me. He's made my skin and flesh grow old. He has besieged me. He has made me dwell in darkness. He has walled me in. He has weighed me down. He shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way. He has made my paths crooked. He dragged me from the path. He drew his bow. He pierced my heart. He has filled me with bitter herbs. He has broken my teeth. He has trampled me in the dust. And who is the he? It is the Lord. The Lord has done it. And so I say, verse 18, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. It's a terrible, terrible catalogue of loss. A sense of of exclusion there in verse 2, of of physical damage in verse 4. There's a real sense of psychological isolation. Verse 7 speaks of feeling trapped. Uh, Verse 8, of being shut out by God so that prayer doesn't get through. And then the imagery becomes violent in verse 10. God is like a, a bear or a lion waiting to attack. And then in verse 12, he becomes an archer, almost like a sniper who picks you off from a distance so that it's impossible to hide from him. There's mockery, verse 14, bitterness, verse 15, an utter, an absolute absence of any hope. The judgment is both terrible and absolute. All of us, I guess, will know something of this. Because there are echoes in it in in all of our losses. Um, Be made redundant, lose a job. Um, Be bereaved, lose somebody you love. Uh, endure a broken relationship, Um, the loss of uh, a a friendship that you felt sure would persevere. In all of those things, there is is the presence to some degree of of a a sense of of the awfulness of loss, the the, the terrible experience of of abandonment, of, of hope extinguished, of expectations that are dashed. But of course, this is so, so much more, isn't it? Because here, if you like, it's not just the loss of a a good gift, but what is being experienced here is, is the loss of the giver himself. Not just one of the things that he gives us that is precious and that it is awful to lose, but the loss of the very one who gives every good gift, the source, the, the, the headspring, if you like, that all the tributaries come from. It's losing him. That's what this lament remembers. Well, we do that with sadness, don't we? We remember it. The anniversary of a death uh, is significant for many people. 
the, the, the place where a loss took place. Some of you have been to Ground Zero uh, and seen the, the memorial museum there commemorating the loss of the collapse of the Tin Twin Towers in that 9-11 attack. The writer remembers, verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. But it's not the only remembering that's going on here. Notice how that stanza finishes. Verse 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This I call to mind. It would be better to capture it in terms of, um, of this I remind my heart. It's not so much a sort of calling a thought into the head, but trying to, trying to pull something right into the heart, right into the soul, to bring it right into the very core of his being. It must be remembered. It must rest upon his heart. And what is it? What is it that he calls to mind? What is it that he presses upon his own heart? It's a memory, a remembering of what God is like. It's second heading. Because I think what we have here is a, is a heroic affirmation of faith. Let me read it again from verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he's young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off forever by the Lord. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. But the writer remembers what God is like. He remembers his great love. The, the original is, is, is that famous Hebrew word hesed, speaking of the faithfulness of the Lord, that the covenant loyalty of God. It's, it's an astonishing affirmation, a kind of a declaration. Our God is good, the writer says, verse 25. So good that he'll never, verse 33, willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Now, I, I didn't know what, else, what other word to use for this other, other than to describe it as heroic. Because here is this believer, surrounded by all of this evidence that points in a contrary direction, that, that is telling him that God has abandoned them, that God can't be trusted. 
that God has brought devastation upon them. In fact, he affirms that he, that he knows it is from God's hand. And yet, though all the circumstances of his life point in, a, in, a, in an opposite direction, as it were, the writer still declares his unbroken faith in the goodness of God. It's heroic to do that. I met a woman um, earlier this week. Um, shan't give you details. Um, but she has every reason to despair both her external circumstances and her internal experience. Give her every reason to doubt the goodness of God. But she is unbowed. In the midst of all she's facing, she clings to faith. Remember Job's wife? In the midst of their awful, awful loss, as she surveyed the loss, she said to him, curse God and die. And Job wouldn't do it. The Lord gave, he said, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's heroic faith. It's the refusal to believe that God is indifferent. I will not believe that he doesn't care. I refuse to accept that he has abandoned me completely. Look at verse 34. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Doesn't he see? Surely he sees. Yes, he will see. I believe that he sees and that he acts in justice and that even these things come from him. That's the statement then that follows in verse 37, isn't it? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? I believe that God is behind the good and the bad. I believe that he is sovereign, that his hand hasn't disappeared just because bad things have happened. I believe that God is still in charge of his universe. And more than that, I still believe that he is good. And I believe that I'm suffering for my sins. That's what this writer, in this particular circumstance, believes. Verse 39, Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? So we return again to a, to a central theme of the book, that the sense that this terrible judgment has come because of sin. Because a righteous God opposes rebellion. Our rebellion against God is always far more serious than we want to believe. And the consequences far more reaching, far, far reaching than we would like to pretend. And, and that's why, finally, third heading, why our writer responds as he does, with humble penitence before God. That's the thread of the, the final section of the chapter. Verse 40, let us examine our ways and test them. And let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled 
and you have not forgiven. It's just an uncompromising, straightforward admission of guilt. Uh, And notice that that it's both sort of, it's corporate, this guilt. Um, And and the grief is corporate as well. It sort of of involves others. Um, the, The writer sort of sees what's happening to other people and includes himself in that. Verse 48, streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. Same idea in verse 51. What I see brings grief to my soul because of the women of the city. Our writer sees the awfulness that is happening and rather than distancing himself from it, uh, identifies himself with it. It's got a powerful lesson in that, isn't there? There's something... There's something really quite ugly when we see bad things happening to other people and we respond not with empathy but with a kind of smug superiority. Let me give you an example. How, how do we think about the many, many other churches in the UK that have fallen away in number and are tiny sort of empty shells now? Do we mourn the collapse of the Christian faith in the UK? Or do we point the finger and gloat? Because we're a larger sized church. It's easy to do that, isn't it? Harder to identify and mourn with others. How do you feel about our society? With all its struggles and pain with the growing confusion over gender and all the hurt that's arising out of its misunderstanding in sexual ethics? Do we feel sad or do we just critique? In the face of terrible loss and judgment in his day, the writer of Lamentations mourns. But he also waits. Verse 24. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. So my dear, in verse 26, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him, it's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Or again in verse 49, my eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees I think that's the posture of the Christian believer, isn't it? In the face of terrible things, either in your own life uh, or in the lives of others around you, to wait. To wait for the breaking in of the kingdom of God. To wait for the manifestation of grace. To wait, finally, for the return of Christ. So how's the chapter work? Well, the chapter begins with, with a real sense of, of the terrible nature of judgment and that that judgment is deserved because of sin. But in the face of all of that, nevertheless, that, that centerpiece, that very heart of the chapter, is a trust in the confidence, uh, a trust in the goodness of God, a confidence that he is faithful, that he is compassionate. And then finally, a determination to, to wait for him. It's kind of the arc of the Christian life. But it's not easy, is it, to do that? 
It's not easy in the face of pain and difficulty and suffering, whether your own or, or that of others around you. When you see hard things happening, it's not easy to take that stance towards God. So as we finish, I just want to ask, how does a believer hold their nerve? And given what I've said about this centerpiece, that the central section of this central chapter really is the central facts that a believer needs to hold on to, well, how do you have that? How do you arrive at such a confidence in the character of God? How can you be so sure? On what basis do you make this confident, heroic affirmation of faith? See, we could look at this terrible suffering all around us. We could respond to this terrible suffering in our own lives with this affirmation that God is good, and it's all just wishful thinking. You know, just make things feel easier if I believe this. Could just be a sort of whistling in the dark, couldn't it? Faced with the horrors of sin and judgment, is that all we've got? Just a bit of wishful thinking. See, what we need is, is some sort of way of being confident that the glorious things that are being said in the middle of the chapter of God's compassion, of his love, of his faithfulness, that they're true. See, see what would be vivid enough to get you and me to believe that? Well, suppose in some extraordinary way it was possible for the awful, awful judgment of verses 1 to 18. Instead of falling on the people who deserve that punishment, suppose the awfulness that's being described there, suppose that fell somewhere else. Suppose God took it upon himself. Suppose he was willing to face the horrors of that judgment. Willing, verse 2, to be cast into darkness for us. Willing, verse 3, to be besieged and surrounded by bitter hardship. Willing, verse 8, to be cut off so that when he cried to God there was no answer. Willing, verse 13, to be pierced by arrows that should have been aimed at us. Willing, verse 14, to be laughed at and mocked. Willing, verse 15, to be given bitter gall to drink. Willing, verse 18, to give his splendor over to a shameful death. What if our God were willing to do all of that, would we then have the evidence that we need? Would he have shown us that he really does love us and that he can be trusted and that it is no folly to heroically declare our faith in him? It seems to me that, verse 21, is what you and I if we're Christian believers, that's what we are to call to mind. That's what we are to remind our hearts. That's what we do as we take bread and wine this evening. 
we call to mind, we remind before our hearts that this is what God's done. This terrible, terrible judgment laid out for us in the book of Lamentations landed on Christ. And in it, we discover just how deep and rich and full is the great love and faithfulness of our God. Uh, The man's going to come up. We're going to sing before we then share bread and wine together. Uh, Let me lead us uh, in a prayer before we sing.